Thank you everyone for coming out tonight for our final talk of this series uh, that we've been talking about, uh, series theme being Confronting a Broken World. Uh, today's talk uh, is titled Religious Freedom or Discrimination. And our presenter today is Philip Munoz, who is an assistant professor of law and political science at the University of Notre Dame. He is the director of the Tocqueville program for inquiry into religion and public life. He writes and teaches across the fields of constitutional law, American politics, and political philosophy with a focus on religious liberty and the American founding. His first book, God and the Founders, Madison, Washington, and Jefferson, won the Hubert Morkin Award for the American Political Science Association for the best publication on religion and politics. His current project is a scholarly monograph on the natural right of religious liberty and the original meaning of the First Amendment's religion clauses. So without further ado, we welcome up Philip Munoz. Pleasure to be with you tonight. Um, I haven't, so I have three little kids, so I don't get to get out uh, much. Uh, in fact, this is, when I, I'm just gonna come up here. When uh, um, I was leaving tonight, my wife was like, where are you going? <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to Theology on Tap. But she's like, what? I'm like, she's looking at me like, w I mean, so she's in the middle of putting, uh, getting our three kids ready for bed. And she's giving me the look like, you are not helping like usual, and you're going to hang out with a bunch of young adults? Like, like no, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Um, so we'll s I hope it goes well. I'm not sure I'm gonna actually get back in tonight. Um, so this, this subject is a difficult one. Uh, uh, religious liberty or discrimination, or religious liberty and discrimination. Uh, it's a sensitive topic. Um, it involves many people personally. And the, the, the church is um, trying to figure out what to do, really, uh, in this changing world of ours. I should say, I, you know, I don't speak, I'm not a theologian. I don't pretend to, to speak on behalf of the church, or I'm not trying to articulate the church's position. I'm just going to try to take you through uh, what the dilemma or the difficulties are, uh, give you a little bit of background on uh, uh, proposed non-discrimination laws, uh, a little history on... Um, church-state jurisprudence and religious freedom protections, and just to try to explain, really, the situation. And then, um, then I guess you'll talk about it a little bit, and then we can talk about it together. Um, so it's, I'm just going to try to uh, present some information to you. Um, I think the, um, maybe the best way to start is just with the recent Supreme Court case. It's called Masterpiece Cake Shop. Do you know this case? Do many of you are familiar with it? How many of you have heard of the case? Okay, well, that's, that's a, a good number of you. So Masterpiece Cake Shop is a case from Colorado, and it was decided by the Supreme Court uh, last June. And I, I'm going to sort of summarize. I might get some of the small details wrong, but I'll basically summarize the, the issue. There's this fellow. Uh, his name's Jack uh, Phillips, and he calls himself uh, a cake artist. I'm sure this is part of his sort of marketing scheme, but he really thinks of himself as an artist, and he does cakes, hence the Masterpiece Cake Shop, you know, his... His logo is a little palette, uh, you know, and, then he, and he's known uh, for, for his, uh, his cake art. So these two fellows come in. Uh, this is, um, I think, in 2012 or thereabouts. 
And uh, I can't remember if they were going to get married in Massachusetts or maybe they had already gotten married in Massachusetts. Now, this is before the uh, Obergefell decision. So, so gay marriage was not constitutional, uh, constitutionally recognized uh, federal right at the time. Uh, but in Massachusetts, uh, you could get uh, same-sex marriage. And these fellows, either, I can't remember if they had already gotten married in Massachusetts or they were going to. And they came, but they're, they're, they're in Colorado, and they wanted to celebrate their wedding in Colorado. So they go into Jack Phillips' shop and say they'd like to order a cake. Now, his wedding cakes are all custom-made, and he sits down with the, the, the couple and goes over, you know, what they want, and he proposes, you know, uh, I mean, didn't actually do this in my wedding, but they, you know, you design a cake together. And very quickly, uh, as they sat down, he came to realize that these two men, it was a cake for their wedding, and he, he informed them. But everyone agrees, he informed them politely, he doesn't, he doesn't do same-sex wedding cakes. Uh, he is uh, evangelical, I believe. Uh, Colorado, as you probably know, there's lots of evangelicals in, in Colorado. I mean, Colorado's an inter interesting state in part because there's lots of evangelicals on the one hand and it's very progressive on the other hand. So uh, it's not surprising a conflict like this would come from Colorado. So I, either the next day or shortly thereafter, um, there was another confrontation, uh, I think, with one of, the, one of the gentleman's mother, between the mother and Jack Phillips. And um, they were not happy about how they were treated. They felt like they were uh, disrespected by Mr. Phillips, even though he was polite. And they, f they filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Uh, Colorado had a law on the books, still has a law on the books, preventing discrimination uh, on any number of things, the usual uh, race, sex, uh, religion, but also on sexual orientation. Uh, so there was a, a complaint filed, a hearing, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, Mr. Phillips was found to violate the Colorado uh, civil rights uh, protections. He, uh, let me try to remember this, he was, I, I don't think he was given a fine, but he was ordered to make the cake, or make, I mean, the fellows got their cake from someone else, so that, I mean, they had long had their party, uh, long ago had their party, but he was ordered to make cakes in similar uh, situations, uh, to undergo and to have his staff undergo training uh, about Colorado's civil rights protections, and then report quarterly, um, make quarterly reports to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission uh, about how he was uh, implementing uh, civil rights law in, in Colorado. Uh, Mr. Phillips uh, then sued under a number of grounds in federal court, alleging that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission's actions towards him violated his First Amendment rights of free speech and uh, freedom of religion. That gets all the way to the Supreme Court in 2017. It's you know usually a case takes three or four, or even five years to to get to the Supreme Court. Um, this was a decision that many people were watching. Uh, it turned out uh, seven to two that Mr. Phillips won. Sort of. So he he won, meaning uh, I suppose his relief was he didn't have to go keep on doing these training and these uh, reports to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. There's no financial uh, reward or anything like that. Um, but it wasn't exactly clear why he won, or let me rephrase that. Uh, the court didn't articulate a clear reason for why he won. What the court said in the majority opinion by Justice Kennedy was, uh, 
basically the Colorado Civil Rights Commissioners, the people doing the hearing, weren't fair to him. Right? They had a clear sort of ideological agenda. They didn't they were animated by hostility to religion. They weren't neutral in their hearing, and therefore they set aside the decision. Uh, the Supreme Court did not say he had a, a right to, to not bake the cake or make the cake. Uh, now, some of the justices said he had a free speech right. Others thought he had a religious freedom right. Um, it seemed that there's four justices who would have gone either free speech or freedom of religion on his side, and four justices who probably wouldn't uh, and then the, the deciding judge was Justice Kennedy, who wrote an opinion that really didn't settle anything and got six other justices to decide with him. Uh, then Kennedy, as you probably remember, decided to retire, uh, basically kicking the can you know, to the next, uh, I guess now, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, and we don't know what's going to happen at the Supreme Court. Right? So Masterpiece Cake Shop didn't really resolve anything. And in fact, I think either the day or the week after Jack Phillips won uh, his case, he was, uh, I, can't, I can't remember now if it was another gay couple came into his shop and they did the same thing over, or was it, was it a transsexual that came in that wanted a cake made, or what, what, do you remember the first, the week after, Nick, what it was? It's, he's been bombarded by cake requests that they know he'll reject so they can sue him again. Right, so this is, and these lawsuits are all over the place. In the state of Washington, there's a florist who uh, did, didn't want to do the wedding, the, um, the wedding flowers for a same-sex couple, uh, and uh, so she was sued. In uh, New Mexico, there was a photographer. Uh, but th this issue is all over the place, right? Uh, if the Knights didn't sell this building, um, would the Knight, it, you know, so I presume you can rent this hall, out. I, mean, I should have found out what the policy is to rent this hall out. But if someone wanted to do a same-sex wedding reception in this building, would the Knights have to rent it out to them? Right? That's the type of issue uh, uh, at hand. So I, the, the, in class at Notre Dame, the examples I use are, uh, okay, so uh, uh, same-sex marriage is a constitutional right now. Does the does that mean that a gay couple can be married in the basilica? No, no not right now. No, right. Um, what about if they? <laughs> what about if they just want to have their photos taken in the basilica? Or the wedding reception in, at the Morris Inn, the hotel? Or the florist on? There's a, actually a florist in the student center, right? What about all these? And then you add um, the movement for transgendered rights. So uh, what about if a transgendered student wants to live in the, in the dorm, right? Notre Dame has single-sex dorms. Uh, most universities, I think, still have single-sex dorms, or at least some of their dorms are single-sex. But if a transgendered student wants to live in the dorm, not of their biological sex, but of their, um, their preferred sex. These are the issues. And they, they hit religious institutions uh, the hardest, right, for obvious reasons. Everyone see that, right? And the Catholic Church in particular as, um, as sort of the institution that um, sort of stands up for traditional morality. Okay. So that's the issue. Uh, and it's not going away. Uh, and it's, um, we're only going to see more of it, I think, right? 
Uh, the court didn't decide anything. So, okay, so let me take you through why the issue now? Why is it sort of exploded now? Uh, what, what are the non-discrimination proposals that would even um, further the issue, make it more difficult for the Catholic Church, I think? What are the religious liberty protections? Okay, let me kind of go through that. And then I'm going to try to keep my remarks short. Uh, I, I think this is the type of issue that's actually very helpful to talk about. Talk about it yourselves, and then we can talk about it uh, together. I think that's actually the best way to, to address it. Okay, so why now? I don't know that I have the answer to this, but I came up with uh, sort of three different, different reasons why this issue is taking off. Uh, the first is uh, sort of an obvious one. Um, we live in a, in a time of tremendous change when it comes to sexual morality, right? I think it's hard, certainly my students, it's, they, it's hard for them to understand, right? Um, Certainly, my grandparents grew up in a different world than today's students. I mean, the world has just radically changed. Why is that? Why has it changed? Different people will say different things. I would say, actually, the, the most dramatic thing affecting our lives today is it's technology, but it's a specific technology, um, which is the pill. What the pill does, or did, is doing, is it separates sex from babies, right? And it used to, there was a package that used to go together, right? Uh, uh, marriage, sex, and then babies. That's the order it was supposed to go, not always, but it sort of was a package, right? You get all three together. Sorry, I'm sort of speaking like a guy. <laughs> so what, with the pill, you, have I violated the sensor? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> With the pill, you, you separate sex from babies. Interesting, the first, the first consequence was actually what you saw was marriage starting to fall apart, right? So the pill becomes widespread in the 60s, access to the pill widespread in the 60s. When do we get no-fault divorce laws? It's in the 70s, right? The consequences of the unraveling were felt immediately. And today you'll hear statistics that the divorce rate is not increasing, it's maybe even falling. I, I, I think those statistics are true. It's actually kind of hard to measure the divorce rate. But what they don't reveal is young, young people just aren't getting married now, right? I mean, the divorce rate is falling in part because people aren't getting married, right? And I think that's all connected to the unraveling of the, of, of uh, let me make sure I get the order right, marriage, sex, and then babies. Okay, so you separate sex from babies, you, marriage starts to fall apart. The second thing is, well, if, if sex and babies aren't connected, I mean, wh wh why, what's the argument against same-sex relations? Because there's only, I mean, the, Again, I'm not a theologian, so I, I don't want to misspeak here or misrepresent, right? But the Catholic Church has held, I mean, every Christian denomination until the early 19th century, uh, early 20th century, excuse me, uh, but the Catholic Church still holds, right, that you can't understand or have a, a, a proper appreciation or engagement in sexual activity disconnected from procreation, okay. if I can just speak generally. Well, if you... If you reject that connection, if you say, no, sex isn't necessarily connected to 
procreation, and you live that way, why is sex connected to opposite sex relations? Do you see the, the logical consequence? Right? The only, I mean, the only reason to be against homosexual relations or think they're disordered, to use the Catholic term, right, would be if you understand sex and procreation to go together. But if they don't, there's, there's no necessary consequence, right? And so that took longer, right? But it, that movement starts to happen, right? The, the movement for same-sex marriage. So I taught, um, there was a book, a uh, very thoughtful book uh, written by a fellow I know uh, in the, uh, this is probably 1993 or 1995, I think it was 1995. And the title of the book was Virtually Normal. And it was sort of the first or mainstream argument um, for um, the, the, the author, who, who himself was gay, argued for two things. He argued for uh, same-sex marriage, and he argued for uh, gays in the military. This is when Bill Clinton, you, you're too young to remember this, was uh, changing the gays in the military policy to don't ask, don't tell, right? And he, Andrew Sullivan is the author's name. He said, look, if we get these two things, same-sex marriage and, and gays in the military, that will normalize uh, homosexual relations and the status of homosexuals in, in society. When I taught this book for the first time, I think it was 1996, I, on, you know how students fill out um, evaluation forms at the end of the semester? I had uh, several students filled out the form, this is unseemly to talk about in a college class, right? And, you know, my argument back was, well, this is, right, this is a, uh, constitutional and political issue, I mean, even if you don't want to talk about it. But that's, I mean, the only type of response you get now would be, uh, it would be unseemly to make arguments against same-sex marriage now, right? I mean, even talking about it 25 years ago was thought impolite, to, at least to some people. So the movement for, for gay rights has, I think, for students today, they don't understand how far and how fast that movement has, has gone, right? Uh, Barack Obama in 2008, when he's candidate Barack Obama, was against gay marriage, right? You, you know that, right? Uh, he was against gay marriage. He was asked, are you for gay marriage? I'm, I'm, he's for, I'm for civil unions, but I'm against gay marriage, right? It's not even... Could you hold a statewide office in any state as a Democrat and be against gay marriage? Not at all. It's not even clear you could be a Republican, actually, right? if you're for against overturning Obergefell. I've heard no Republican actually make. So that, I mean, that was, that's 10 years or 11 years. Right? Okay, so uh, a technological change, right, 50 years ago or 50 plus years ago, and that the, the, the consequences of that change are are uh, reaching us now. I mean, it's a long time coming, but it's, it's like you hit a tipping point and it, and it just sort of, it's there, okay? Um, so why this conflict now? Uh, rapid social change of our mores, All right? That's the first answer. Uh, the second answer, uh, unfortunately, has a lot to do with the Catholic Church and the absolute, um, and I'm sorry if this offends one, the absolute moral failure of our clergy. Right? I lived in Boston um, for a number of years right after the scandals broke out there. 
And I mean, this, what the sex abuse scandals have done to the prestige of the Catholic Church and its ability to teach morality is, is, is awful, right? Our leaders have not led well, right? And those who find it difficult to believe the church's teachings, certainly the, you know, all of us who find it difficult to live with the church's teachings, when the people who are supposed to be the moral shepherds fail in such a public way, right, people understandably start to question everything. And we're going through it again. Right? So rapid social change, a complete failure of leadership of many, certainly not all, but many in the Catholic Church, including unfortunately, uh, you know, senior leadership of the Catholic Church. And then connected to all of this is the rise of the nuns. The, this nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who are, who, who basically grow up without religion. I think they've now overtaken Mormon as the largest religious group, meaning when people do social science surveys, you know, what religion are you? Those unaffiliated with the religion are the fastest growing group in America. I, I've been told, I don't know if this is true, that the, the largest uh, denomination, uh, single denomination is Catholics in America. The second largest would be people who were Catholic but are no longer Catholic. Right. The, I mean, it used to be a very small percentage of people would say, when asked, I'm not, I'm I'm not affiliated with any church. And now you have, I don't have this as much at Notre Dame, but before Notre Dame, you have students who, in some ways, are not hostile to religion because they know nothing about it. Students have, who have never gone to church. Their grandparents were probably faithful or relatively faithful churchgoers, Catholic or otherwise. But in three generations, you had right parents, um, or now grandparents, who would be faith, faithful mass-goers or church-goers, who raised children, who went to church, but then somewhere stopped going to church, and then they just stopped passing the faith on. Well, what happens when you have lots of people who aren't religious and don't know anything about religion? And you say to them, and they tend to be socially liberal, and you say to them, um, well, religious people aren't 100% on board with um, uh, LBGT, LBG, alphabet rights. They're like, why? What's wrong with you? Why would you have that position? Um, how many of you grew up in, in Indiana or the Midwest? Anyone grow up on the coast? So I grew up in Seattle, lived in Los Angeles for, for 10 years, and then went, moved to Boston. And it's like, it, Indiana's a, like a different country. <laughs> right. I don't think I, would a Catholic, I mean, unless it was a very explicitly, intentionally countercultural Catholic church, wouldn't really have a talk like this, I think. Or a talk like this would be very controversial in Seattle. Right? You just don't, you don't say these sorts of things. Right? So I was at Tufts University, which, which I love being there, but 
you know, it's a, just a very progressive place, right? And the, the Catholic chaplain didn't agree with the Catholic Church's teachings on morality, at least on sexual morality, and was unashamed to, to say that. Okay, so a uh, technological change that no one saw the consequences of, or that's not exactly true, but that we're experiencing the consequences of, um, uh, the rise of the nuns, uh, and uh, I can't remember, what was the second one? <laughs> and, the, and the failures of leadership uh, among Catholic, Catholic leadership in particular, but this is, you know, evangelicals have had their own, their own problems. That's why now, add into that the great success of the gay rights movement. If you, I mean, just looking at it as a, a political and social phenomenon, uh, if you want to study social movements, uh, it is amazingly, the gay rights movement has been amazingly successful. If you had asked any American, you know, pick a year, 1955, 1965, you know, that you would have gay marriage in 50 years and widespread acceptance in American culture, people would have thought you were crazy. People would have thought you were crazy if you said that in 2005. And, and there are books, there, there, there are interesting documents you can find, meetings among gay rights groups, and they're absolutely fascinating on, this is how we win the culture. And do you know what the strategy was? Well, actually, it wasn't gay marriage, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, will and grace. Any of you know this show? Yeah, yeah. But that's the mainstreaming right there. Right. And that was all intentional. Right. Okay, so that's where we are. Okay. Um, where might we be going? Well, there are two main, um, two main pieces of legislation that are being thrown around right now. Uh, one is called the Equality Act. It's been around a long time. And one is called... Uh, Fairness for all. Um, I just want to make sure I get the details right here. So the Equality Act, and these are these change a little bit from time to time. Um, both pieces of legislation would amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and maybe to simplify a complicated issue, they would extend what, what's called SOGI, right, sexual orientation uh, and gender identity. They would add those to the, the types of discrimination that are not allowed. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibited discrimination based on race and all sorts of you know, public accommodations, uh, places of business, things like that. Right? The Equality Act would simply amend that list to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Okay. That would be federal legislation. That is now. Many states have such legislation, leg legislation already, right, at the state level. Or within a state, a city can have it, or a town can have it, right? But these are f pieces of federal legislation that would cover the whole nation. Fairness for all is the same, except it would add a, a level of protection for religious liberty interests, for religious liberty. And again, to, ov to oversimplify, so Equality Act would s simply say no discrimination uh, uh, based on sexual orientation or gender identity. 
uh, fairness for all says no discrimination unless you are a church or a, a religious business or, and this is where the legislation will change, and, right? Unless you have religious reasons not to comply with the law. Okay. Those are the two major pieces of non-discrimination legislation. And there's a debate, mainly among Democrats, on should we exempt religious individuals or religious institutions or not from these protections, right? Uh, and and that's, a, that's a honest debate among, among those on the left, those proposing these. Um, there has been interesting in recent weeks, actually, uh, some uh, uh, event, not evangelical, Protestant groups have come around to accepting the Fairness for All per Act, right? And that's an in interesting cultural and political marker. Okay. Okay, what about the religious liberty protections? Right, but right now, these, this, these pieces of legislation I don't think can pass, right? Um, but the moment uh, the Democratic Party had the House, Congress, and the presidency, they would, they would pass in a minute. Um, and even if the, even, uh, I don't think you could get this legislation past the Senate right now, but, you know, it's, it's not too many votes away. Put it that way. I think every Democrat would vote for it, and some Republicans would vote for it. Um, I, I'm not a huge Donald Trump fan, but I'm pretty sure he would veto such legislation simply because the so religious conservatives are part of his base. Okay, but you know, politics can change very quickly. Okay, what about the religious liberty protections? You know, what are those protections? Um, this is a long subject. Let me just give you, so there's two levels of protection. There's the Constitution's protection, right? We have the free exercise of religion, that's in the First Amendment, right? Neither Congress nor a state can prohibit the free exercise of religion. What does that protect? And then we have something, a piece of legislation that was passed in 1993 called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, do you remember a couple years ago that there's this big hubbubaloo down in Indiana? Mike Pence wanted to publish, uh, uh, push forward a, a Indiana Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Do you remember this? Yeah. So that was a state level version of a, a national piece of legislation. Let me explain what those, those are. And I'm actually going to give you a little bit of a long story here. There's a case in 1963 called uh, Sherbert versus Werner. And this woman, Adele Sherbert, uh, this is a Supreme Court case, she worked in, in a textile factory. And she was a Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, she had worked for the, in this textile factory for 30-plus years. And then the textile factory was sold, and there's new owners. And she had an accommodation from the old owners. She'd only work five days a week. Uh, they were closed on Sunday, and she was a Seventh-day Adventist, so they didn't make her work on Saturday. That was her Sabbath. The new owner said, no, you have to be just like everyone else. You have to work on Saturday. Right? We're not going to accommodate your religion. And uh, she got fired because she didn't show up for work, like eight Saturdays in a row. Okay, fine. She filed for unemployment insurance from the state of South Carolina. The state of Ca South Carolina said, um, uh, no, Mrs. Sherbert, you don't get your unemployment insurance because you're fired for good reason. You're fired for cause. You didn't show up for work. She sued the state of South Carolina, not the employer, the state of South Carolina, and said that the denial of my unemployment insurance violated my free exercise of religion because I was fired because I wanted to go to my church services. Everyone follow? The Supreme Court said, uh, in a 
decision called Sherbert versus Werner, that the First Amendment's free exercise clause protects religious individuals and religious institutions um, from what they call direct burdens on religion. That is, if the state of South Carolina said, no one can worship on Saturday, you must worship South Carolina, can't do that. Or indirect burdens on religion. For example, the state of, is, the state of South Carolina denies a citizen a benefit because of their religion, that's the equivalent of fining them for practicing their religion. Now, the unemployment compensation law said nothing about religion at all. South Carolina wasn't trying to discriminate against Seventh-day Adventists. But the effect of that law, the Supreme Court said, was to burden her religion. And the First Amendment protects against direct and indirect burdens of religion. In practice, that means religious citizens had a constitutional right to accommodations when generally applicable laws burden their religious exercise. Classic case from the 70s involved mandatory school attendance laws and the Amish. Right? Wisconsin said you had to go to school until you're 16. Amish pulled their kids out of school about 13 or 14. Amish parents were fined $5 a day for not sending their kids to school. Sort of interesting, you know, why, you know, I mean, who cares? But the superintendent of public school was like, I'm making these Amish kids to go to school. And the Amish parents sued, uh, uh, and they won at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, look, the state of Wisconsin can have mandatory school attendance laws. You just, the state must accommodate the Amish because of the First Amendment. Everyone follow? In a shocking decision in 1990, the Supreme Court reversed that rule the exemption rule. And we don't have to go through the details, but the Supreme Court said, no, the First Amendment doesn't protect religious citizens from indirect burdens on their religious exercises. Right. It's a little bit of a complicated case, but the author of that decision, somewhat surprisingly, was Justice Scalia. Okay. In 1993, Congress passed a law, and they titled it the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So why is it titled the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Because what Congress said is, okay, if the Supreme Court's not going to protect religious freedom, meaning exemptions from gender applicable law, we will. We will restore religious freedom and pass a piece of federal legislation that says religious citizens have a presumptive right to exemptions from burdensome, burdensome laws, like Mrs. Sherbert and like the Amish. Now, I should clarify, it doesn't mean that the religious citizen always gets an exemption from the law, right? There's a, there's a test, and the test is, um, this, these are legal terms, uh, the religious individual gets an exemption from the law if it's burdensome, unless the state has what's called a compelling state interest in applying the law and does so in the least restrictive means. But the burden of proof is on the state. That's federal, that's federal law right now. Okay, so here's where we're at. Um, are, are we as a nation or a state going to pass non-discrimination laws uh, based on sexual orientation and gender identity that it would be very hard for traditional religious believers to comply with? Right. So Notre Dame used to have married student housing. It doesn't have married student housing now. But 
if a same-sex couple wanted to live in Notre Dame student housing, married student housing, if they're married, would Notre Dame have to comply? If this federal legislation was pa passed, the answer, I think, would be yes, unless there was a religious liberty exemption. What about the Knights of Columbus and their building? Or what about you know, Tony, Tony's Pizza Shop? For whatever reason, Tony doesn't want to cater uh, transgender acceptance party. Does Tony, the pizza guy, get an exemption from those non-discrimination laws? Probably not. Probably not, because he's not a church, right? Where will this hit, just a few things, a few more. Where will this hit Catholics the most? A couple of examples for you. Um, well, where has it hit already? Do, do you know what's going on with Catholic adoption agencies? So the Catholic Church is one of its works of service, facilitates adoptions, right? Have you heard about this? Catholic Charity facilitates the doctrine, but not in Boston and not in Philadelphia. And why not? Rainbow Catholic Church in Boston, Boston was the first one, and this was about 15 years ago, refused to um, provide adoption services for gay couples. And the city of Boston said, if you won't place children in gay households, you can't do adoptions in our city. And that just happened in Philadelphia. And that's going to keep, that's going to go on and on. Uh, anyone a psychologist here? It will be very hard, well, there's all sorts of professional fields where it will be very hard to get a license to practice psychology, to practice even medicine. Uh, if these non-discrimination laws go into effect. Because what you will see is, if you won't counsel in a certain way, you can't be an accredited psychologist and get a license. Uh, all sorts of universities will have trouble if you um, getting accreditation. Now, Notre Dame is accredited. Why do you need accreditation? Anyone know? If you're not accredited, you're not eligible to receive federal funds. If you don't receive federal funds, very hard to run a university. And accreditation will be tied to what? The compliance with non-discrimination law. Or here's my favorite one. This one, this is, this is how I see this working. Uh, what if a university uh, refuses to uh, have non-discrimination law. I, how could you get a big university to change its policies, a big religious university to change its policies? Even, even more important than that. You are not eligible to participate in NCAA postseason activities if your university does not adopt non-discrimination policies. Do you remember a couple years ago I referenced the state level Religious Freedom Re Restoration Act fight that was going on in Indianapolis? Did you, do you remember how the NCAA tried to put pressure on the state of Indiana? So the women's final four was going to be played in Indiana. 
right, in, in the, or, or maybe it's the men's final four, in the big football stadium, right? And the NCAA said, if you pass this Religious Freedom Restoration Act, we will pull the NCAA championships from Indianapolis. We will not let Notre Dame in the college football playoffs. That's where I see this going. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I have kind of a basic question. Okay. How does the law define religion in general? So like, <laughs> yeah. would people who are nuns, be con would that be considered their religion? Yeah. What about like, you know? Yeah, uh, that's actually a really difficult, <laughs> difficult question. There's, um, it's kind of like if it, if it walks like a duck, quack, what's this right? Walks, quacks, looks. There's not, there's not a clear, like one precise legal definition. They tend to be, um, when lawyers get, get this question, they all, they all say the same thing. You know, we can, we can operate the law, we can figure it out. You can, you can smoke out fraudulent religions. There, there was a case recently, um, I think this was Arizona, there's a woman who claimed, I'm not making this up, uh, claimed to be a member of the, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. <laughs> and I think her religion required her, you know, in your driver's license picture, you're not supposed to wear a hat. Though there are some, you know, uh, religious, I think, accommodations for that. But she wanted to uh, put a colander, you know, like what you drain your spaghetti with, <laughs> on her head. And I, now I can't remember if she won or lost. Yeah. I remember seeing this picture. Did she win? Yeah, so. It's not, it's, yeah. This is a, sort of the type of question that gets handled sort of case by case. But, yeah. It was a, so it's a, it's a good question though. So Hobby Lobby, right? Remember the Hobby Lobby case? The big question was, did Hobby Lobby was it eligible as a for-profit corporation for religious liberty protections? And, and do you know about Hobby Lobby? Hobby Lobby won. Hobby Lobby won, but you know, about the store itself, right? The Christian owners, and they close at eight, and they're not open on Sunday. Um, so these owners, it's a mission-driven company, and apparently they're good to their employees. And so they said, Hobby Lobby, the owners said, look, we, we operate our business not as a religion, but in light of our religious beliefs. And then they were found to um, be protected. But it was a close call. So it's a, it's a good question. So I've heard this uh, floated around every now and then, that people want to, uh, or they think it's unfair that churches uh, are untaxed and that they should start taxing churches and to increase revenue or whatever. Do you see that as potentially discrimination? Like, y you could argue that a church getting taxed too much would close and then, like, do you, what do you think about, like, a situation like that? Uh, well, I mean, churches getting uh, not taxed, being tax exempt, I mean, I guess in a certain extent, it's, let's, let's stay away from churches. I'll tell you what's not fair. I pay more property taxes than the University of Notre Dame. That's not fair. <laughs> Sorry, Father Jenkins, but yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that itself is odd. 
uh, Harvard University that has a, an endowment of $34 billion um, and literally was buying the city of Alston. Like it wanted to expand and that was a city. It was kind of a lower income city and they were like, all right, we'll just buy it. What are you going to do with $34 million? Billion, $34 billion. How could you spend that much money? Um, so, I, yeah, there are lots of unfairness. It's interesting to think about churches and property taxes, right? Um, what would happen if churches paid property taxes? Well, some churches, I mean, you've been to St. Patrick's, in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. It's on West 57th. It's like the whole block. Could you imagine what the property taxes would be? Right? It's, you probably couldn't maintain it, right? You'd have to sell it. But let me, let me pose a, a different question to you. When's the last time you've heard a sermon on excessive taxation? Never. Why not? They don't want to get their butts in trouble. Are many pastors worried about excessive taxation? It certainly hurts the poor. So it's a complicated issue. I mean, part of the problem is you have vested interests, right? I mean, to, to take an organization or buildings that have not been tax exempt and then to apply taxes to them would so radically change, you know, the expected, right? You, you build something, you're not expecting to pay taxes with it, then all of a sudden have to pay taxes on it would seem to be unfair. I guess to, to follow up on that one is something that some people have argued that the churches in general have... Um, a, a, a sway on uh, passing laws, so they could legally be taxed because that would, that would be taxation with representation, as opposed to either the, as opposed to either to pay taxes or give up your lobbying, for lack of a better term. There's no constitutional right not to be taxed. That's just a provision of the tax code. So we, there's no reason, so um, where's, where's, the, where's Chuck, the Knights of Columbus guy? I, mean, I, don't, I assume the Knights of Columbus, or the owners, the Columbus Club, doesn't pay taxes on this building, right? Uh, it's a nonprofit organization, charitable group. Often they don't, they don't pay property taxes. But these are just provisions in the tax code. All right, so there's certainly no constitutional right to be tax exempt. It doesn't violate the Constitution to make churches tax exempt, but there's no, there's no Constitution. And we do that because we, why do we do that in the first place? We make all sorts of things tax exempt because they, we think they contribute to society, right? Churches contribute to the common good in all sorts of ways. And so we, you know, to encourage them to make it more affordable for churches to do all the things churches do, we make them tax exempt. But that could change. That's just a, there would be if, if the people of Indiana or South Bend or the United States decided, hey, everyone should pay the same taxes, churches, nonprofit groups, everyone should pay the same property taxes, whatever the same means, that's plausible. That doesn't strike me as inherently unfair, right. especially if you started that way from the beginning. Whether it's wise or not is a different question. And then what to do now because they've been tax exempt is a different question. But I'd go after the universities first. <laughs> we, you elaborated about tax exempt status, yeah. how that applies to churches and other charitable organizations. 
is it not only restricted to that of the Christian background? Could it influence, say, a Jewish synagogue or a Buddhist temple, etc.? I'm sure they're tax exempt. I mean, I'm not in tax law, but I'm sure Jewish synagogues are tax exempt, just like Christian church property. It, it would probably be, it would certainly be unconstitutional to only exempt, you know, Protestant churches and not Catholic churches, or Christian churches and not Jewish synagogues. That would undoubtedly be unconstitutional. Uh, hi there. So we have a lot of, say, religious symbolism in a lot of, say, our government stuff, like on the American model is in God we trust. We have God in the Pledge of Allegiance, the uh, Declaration of Independence has the word creator in it. Um, so all this sort of really, so how does this actually affect the idea of the separation between the church and the state despite all this religious symbolism in that we see in the American. Yeah, movement. yeah, so there's a big case on this right now. Are you, you've been following this? I think the Supreme Court's gonna hear it this week. Do you know, Nick, did they hear it this week, next week? It's a case in Maryland. There's a big cross, which is a memorial to soldiers. And it's tall, it's like 50 feet. And I think it's like in the middle of the highway or something. Not exactly sure what the architects were doing here, but, um, but it's on public land and uh, it's maintained. I, can't be that expensive to maintain, but there's some expenses. And um, it's going before the Supreme Court this week. Is that constitutional? A 50-foot cross erected by the government on government property. Um, it will, I'm pretty confident that they're not going to strike it down as unconstitutional. It's a World War I memorial, yeah, yeah. But so the last time the Supreme Court heard cases like this, there's two Ten Commandment monuments. Um, there was one case from Texas, and um, on the grounds of the Texas State Capitol, there was a Ten Commandment monument, and then there was a courthouse in Kentucky, and there was a Ten Commandment plaque or display in the Kentucky courthouse. This is in 2005, and the Supreme Court said the Ten Commandments in Kentucky were unconstitutional, but the Ten Commandments in the Texas State Capitol were constitutional. You know, how they reached this decision is sort of, you know, and they did, both cases were decided on the same day, right? There are 10 opinions written, there's only nine justices. I mean, it's extraordinarily confusing. So um, these questions are a big mess. The, the, just to bring in sort of politics into this, so um, the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court and not Merrick Garland probably changes all this. If Garland's on the Supreme Court, the cross is probably found unconstitutional. But that Kavanaugh's on it, I mean, probably. We don't really know, but that's my, that's my guess. For those who are advocates of maybe what we could call a progressive agenda, are there, in your opinion, are there motives um, altruistic that they believe that that is the best state of society? Um, or if, if for the people for whom that's not the case, is there sort of... Um, an other benefit that they're trying to achieve or some other motivation that's not quite this belief that that's the best way? Well, I am, I'm sure different people are different, but no, I mean, I think, look, um, lots of people, uh, what I said before, look, if, if, if sex is not created to procreation, and let's face it, it's not like, you know, a large percentage of Catholics are following natural family planning, right? 
I mean, if you're a gay rights advocate, just, just speaking to Catholics, say, look at how you live. You don't, you don't follow these teachings, but you want us to follow these teachings? We want to live just like you. Why are you discriminating against us? You don't even follow your own teachings. It's hard to find fault with that argument. I mean, these subjects are enormously complex and people are complicated, but I mean, people, you know, most people are basically the same. They want to be treated well, and if they think you're treating them unfairly, they, don't, they want you to stop. Advocates think people are being treated unfairly. So you left off the talk on kind of a bleak note where uh, the organizations or people with influence are going to almost for coerce um, uh, those groups and individuals who I, I guess hold more traditional values to conform and that's kind of the way you're seeing them going. Um, is there any alternative to that or any any way that you might see kind of a, a reversion go to start maybe not going all the way back all the way back but move the pendulum the other way? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. So, it's, so what we were talking about in the back is um, I think one underappreciated or under-understood fact about all this is corporate power, right? So the fact that um, corporations were putting a lot of pressure, big, big corporations, Apple, right, Eli Lilly, I think, the NCAA, were putting a lot of pressure on this. And I think we don't, we're starting to see that more and more, or be open to it. Um, it's, I'm not sure why the corporate power is so much on the progressive left. I, I, I'm just not sure why that is. Uh, how, you know, what, what could be done? Well, I mean, I don't know what can be done, to be honest. Um, you know, I don't know how we come to a workable solution. I mean, the, the facts of the matter is America is a very diverse society, and diverse in all sorts of ways, but diverse in its understanding of morality. So how can a people in a very large country um, get along? Right, that's what we have to figure out. I mean, my sort of preferred position is just people just stop being mean to each other, and just leave people alone. Like that, I think that would help. I mean, that's sort of the old-fashioned way, right? Just let your neighbor do what they want and don't force them to do anything. Um, but everyone wants to sort of impose their own view of things. Um, one thing the Catholic Church could do, or Catholics could do, um, Imagine if the Catholic divorce rate was 10%. Right? As far as I know, the Catholic divorce rate is the same as everyone else's, right? Somewhere around 50%. But imagine if the Catholic divorce rate was 50 or 10%. How many people would be interested in Catholicism right? or revert back to their Catholic faith or be like, wow, what's going on? Why do Catholics live so well? Look how you know, well their families and communities. And in some ways, if Catholics can't even get their own house in order, how are you going to evangelize the world if you're not even living the faith? Right? So in some ways, I would say, if you want to change the world, I mean, the church has just got to live. Catholics have to live as Catholics. I'm wondering if you have heard any statistics on any Catholic couples or couples that might be of other faiths that are faithful with NFP as opposed to any other sort of forms of um, contraception, what those divorce rates look like? 
Yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd love to know. I don't know. I mean, I've always thought um, if there's any advertising people or marketing people here, that the, the, the logical and natural place for NFP to be evangelized to the world is through Whole Foods, right? <laughs> you just, you charge a lot of money and you call it organic babies, <laughs> right? And it's like at the checkout stand, right? Like the pamphlets or whatever, you know. Exactly sure what the products are, but you know you could charge a lot, right? Maybe you just go to the yeah. instructors and start telling them that. Yeah, I you know the first thing we have to do is actually um, the teaching is very rich, right? And I think I mean the the beauty of the Catholic Church, other than its art and everything, is the wisdom of its teachings. The tragedy of the Catholic Church is that like it. So dumb, like it doesn't know how to teach what it believes, and I don't know what to do about that. Right? That's Stephen's job; is he works for the Institute for Church Life, but it's just this treasure that the world needs so much. Right? So I don't. I'm not sure. Um, so one of the things that comes out in the news every once in a while is like a growing Muslim minority in the U.S. and how we have a growing Hispanic population and that the Hispanic population tends to be more religious than mainstream America. How do you see that affecting this discussion as these minorities who are maybe more in line with traditional moral teachings, as they grow, how will that affect the conversation? Hard to know. I mean, the, I, I, I know next to nothing about the Muslim question. So I mean, the Muslim immigration is a much bigger issue in Europe than it is than it is here. Um, one thing we don't know is second generation and third generation Hispanics. Do they keep the faith? Do they not? And I don't know that anyone knows that yet. These are they're great questions. That um, you know, if I did social science research, that's the type of question I'd ask. And I I, I don't know that we know. Is the answer? I don't know that anyone. I mean, like, like your question over here, you know, what can we do? I, the world is not sort of going down one particular track. It, it's, if, if politics has taught us anything in the last five years, right, who knows what can happen? And, he, you know, human beings and are free. And it's just all sorts of unexpected things happen. Right? I mean, if... Um, uh, my position is, as long as people die, they'll be religious. And we live in an odd time of sort of religious belief receding. Um, but people are still going to die, for, at least for the foreseeable future. I mean, that would really change things if they, if <laughs> that would be a, a technological change, right? If, if the lifespan became 150 years, what will that do to everything? Right? There are some people who actually think this, that you know, that your kids' kids will live to be 150 or 175. Like, what will that do to us? I mean, it's even hard to imagine or think about. For now, let's just assume, people, as long as people are dying, people will are look, they'll look for higher meaning. And where will they find it? And I think a lot of these questions depend on where they will find it. Because people will find higher meaning somewhere. Right? 
right? So will it be in the church? Will it be in a, in a new form of paganism? Will it be, anything's possible right now. These are great questions. So you spoke of the growing um, divorce rate as a factor really into how the society that we have today. But I was wondering, do you also consider to say the growing illegitimacy rate, the growing number of single parent households uh, as a, another factor to that? Well, I don't know that the divorce rate is growing. Um, because as I said, people are not getting married as much, right? You can't get divorced if you don't get married. Um, so I don't think the divorce rate is growing. I mean, the, the growth of illegitimacy, this is just all tied in to, to this, right? When you have the breakdown of marriage, you're gonna have the increase of illegitimacy. And I, I think it's fair to say, I don't know what you, what you would say, it's not really a stigma anymore, right? And there's lots of good, good reasons why it shouldn't be a stigma, but you know, it's just, it's not even, I don't know, is it, ex are you supposed to have kids in marriage still? Would you look, be, would people think, well, hey, you're not supposed to do that? I, I don't know, that, that norm has changed. All the social science research seems to suggest it's not good for the kids, right? Uh, for all sorts of obvious reasons, right? I mean, kids, uh, kids are hard. You need as many hands as you can have. Kids are expensive. Um, it's a lot harder to do things alone, you know, than it is. So it's certainly not helping anything. And, and not to say it's heroic, that, you know, especially all the single mothers are they're heroes for what they're doing. It's not ideal. So we were talking a lot about churches and other of these religious institutions, but what about, I was just thinking about like St. Mary's, the all-women's college, or even if you go a non-secular college, do you believe there'll come a point when they have to open their doors to even men because there's this, this transgender movement? Oh, that's already happened, that's, that's so 2015. <laughs> <laughs> Smith, uh, uh, Smith College, Scripps College, um, I don't think it's happened at St. Mary's yet, but that's, I, I would guess, I don't know this, for non-religiously non affiliated uh, all-women's schools, my bet would be all of them except biological males who identify as women. I mean, maybe it's only 90%, but I expect it's all of them. Um, so I was thinking about uh, when you were talking about uh, what if the Catholic divorce rate was significantly lower than, you know, the average uh, divorce rate, and, uh, so I was thinking about how maybe just like social norms or things that um, collective, th you know, collective ideas and stuff like that. So the whole civil right mu uh, movement with um, same-sex marriage. Um, and I was just thinking about, do you think, so say the Catholic divorce rate did drop significantly lower and then people found value um, in our faith, right? They, they looked at our, um, at our faith and they, you know, they found value in it. Do you think that's something that could drive law to, or to spur people into more, you know, virtuous laws, I suppose? Well, maybe, but my idea was actually uh, getting away from law, right? Oh, okay. I mean, law is a blunt tool, and you look, you could make, um, what would happen if you, if um, people, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate this myself, but let's say a, a group of traditionally religious-minded people, or maybe even Catholics, were able to get rid of no-fault divorce. Right, go back to you have to have you know re a reason to get divorced. What would the prod one could say? Hey, that's that's a better di marriage law. What would the outcome of that law be? Nobody gets married. No one's gonna get married. 
You just have a, the, you, the marriage rate would plummet, even more so. This it's not. Law has its place, um, but it can't. It's not a substitute. It can't take the place of um, people living well, people living virtuously. And you're, it's laws can help, but they're not really going to do it. I think the the, the laws will reflect the culture. So you've got to be able to change the culture. Right. I, I use the example of the ca if the Catholic divorce rate was 10%, why would people, people would be so attracted. Like, what are you doing, right? Or if you've, you, I'm sure you have friends who have a really good marriage, right? I mean, when you see a couple like that, especially they have a bunch of kids, right? Young people just gravitate towards them. It's such an attractive thing for uh, the most obvious reasons, right? that people hunger for that and they need to see models of that and it pains me tremendously that the the way uh, that the church isn't that well thank you very much <laughs>